State, let me ask you a question. Do we have that video back there? He's working on it. Guys, let me tell you something, and, and I threw it in late, so if I'm messing them up, it's my fault. I got something from Shine this morning, and uh, they're trying to get it loaded for you to see, but I'll try to tell you what I'd love for you to be able to see here in a minute. I told you that, I mean, and let's just start off this morning. Isn't God good? I mean, God continues to show himself faithful over and over and over and over. And we said a few months ago or a few years ago, when we started looking at this church planting, we said that God could do more to multiply if we're willing to go and we're willing to send. And this church stepped up and was willing to not just send 80 members, but the, just think about the financial impact that has. Think about the leadership impact that has. But we believed that, number one, God would replace those that he took here. And folks, I can tell you, we haven't run any lower since we sent those folks to shine than, uh, than we have run the rest of the year. And not only that, but financially, we are stronger even after uh, shine has been sent out. But let me tell you what has happened. You got it, Nate? If you don't, it's okay. Oh, are you serious? Is it like sideways? Don't sweat it. Don't show it. Guys, what we, because I'll get dizzy. Let me, let me tell you what's happening over at Shine this morning. 370 people showed up for services this morning. They're out of parking. They've had to add seats. It was more than they were even expecting to have there this morning. And folks, let me tell you something. In, in a week, we've got twice as many people in services than we would have had on a normal Sunday right here because of our willingness to get out in these new communities and to share Jesus. So church, I want to say thank you to all of you because it's your sacrifice, it's your willingness that makes all of these things possible and you're letting God use this church. He's letting, you're letting God use you. And folks, keep praying. Keep praying that those numbers will continue to grow, that they will see many people come to Christ this morning through the preaching of the word. We pray it not just for them, but we pray it for ourselves as well. So I feel like I've had church. We're still going to open up the Bible. Yeah, look at this. Check this out. Look at that full room. And there's a lot of faces there I don't know. Church, isn't that amazing? Let's, let's thank the Lord one more time for that. That does this pastor's heart good. So uh, I don't know what we're going to do. We have a two-year contract at that building. We may have to go to multiple services out there. That would be phenomenal. So, church. Y'all just don't know how much we've been praying for that thing and working towards that thing. Romans chapter 5. And, and this is going to just flow so well into what we're talking about today. Because today is a, a text that we get to celebrate we're going to use a word that we don't use much in the English language anymore, but it's right here in this text. Many of the translations use it. It's a word that is described and defined as, listen to this, triumphant elation. The word, another word we don't use a whole lot in English, but we know what it means, jubilation. It means that we as a people of God have every reason to celebrate, every reason to give thanks, every reason to worship, our lives should just exude a joy because we know who we are in Christ. When we started this book of Romans, this is one of the, the most phenomenal books in all of the Bible. If you could say, Aaron, you only get one book of the Bible, which would you choose? It would be this book of the Bible because it so clearly describes salvation. It gives us the most theology of any book really in the scriptures, and it teaches us who we are in Christ and the difference that Christ makes in the way that we live our lives. And you can pick anywhere in the book of Romans, and it's going to be an amazing Sunday of teaching and of Bible study, but especially this morning as we get to look at this amazing text that is about the benefit. Let me say that again, the benefit of being justified in Christ. Now, if you haven't been with us and we've been away from this series for a few weeks, let me remind you what it means to be justified. It means that if we were to stand before God today in Christ, because of what Christ has done, we stand justified. It means we stand not guilty. It means literally 
that, that our sins have been washed away because of what Christ has done. And when he looks at us, he declares us righteous. Not on our own merits, not because of our works, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And our faith and belief and trust in his sacrifice for us. Now, when we talk about justification, this started way back in the, in the beginnings of the book of Romans. Because already we've talked about, th- and we're going to hit the third thing today. When you look at, at an overview of what we've already studied, the first three books of, or the first three chapters of the book of Romans is really, you could say, this is our need for justification. This is why we need to be saved. This is why we need to be changed and transformed. And you remember the book of Romans started by saying that basically he feels compelled to share the gospel because there is a truth that matters to all of us. It is a truth that, that affects our destiny, our whole eternity. And that is that because of our sins, you say, who's a sinner? Well, there's not one person in this room that isn't a sinner. And I don't mean just a little bit of a sinner, but I mean the Bible says that we all are wretched sinners to the core of our being, to our very nature. And he says that the wrath of God was being poured out on all of mankind because we rejected God. And that's the first step to salvation is realizing that you have a need, a need to be justified. So when he looked at the need, that's what the first three chapters were making clear. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter how you grew up, doesn't matter about your grandparents, doesn't matter if you went to church all your life, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized. None of that matters if you don't have faith in a personal relationship with Christ. Then you're just as lost as you can be. And you're facing an eternity of hell and God's wrath. But then he talked about how we're justified. That's what the end of three, chapter 3 and end of uh, chapter 4. I think Jason preached the entirety of chapter 4 last time that we were here in this book. And how we are justified, the Bible puts very simply. It's not complicated. It says that we are justified by faith. The just shall live by faith. We put our hope, we put our trust, we put all of our belief In the Messiah who came and died, not only to forgive us of our sins, but he gave to us his perfect righteous life. And when God looks at me, I'm not going to go to God one day. And if he were to ask me, Aaron, why could you stand in my presence? I'm not going to say because of my works, because of my church membership, because I was baptized, because granny was a believer. I'm not going to state any of those things. I'm going to say one reason and one reason only. I believe Jesus Christ is the perfect, sinless Son of God who came to die for me. And I placed my faith in Him. And I trusted that what He did on the cross was able to save me. I put no hope in myself. All of my hope rests in the finished work of Jesus. That is all that my salvation is bound up in. I am justified simply for one reason. Faith. God called me. God saved me. God opened my eyes to this salvation, and he gave me a second chance at life. And all he said I needed to do was to believe on him. And then you get to Romans 5, and this is where we get to celebrate. Because he says, when you realize how lost you were and how badly you needed God, and now you come to realize how it is that you can be saved, he says, let me tell you the benefits of justification, what it means to you personally if you receive Christ as Lord and Savior and you stand in faith believing that Christ and Christ alone can and has saved you. Folks, let me tell you something. There are some wonderful benefits. I want to read them to you this morning. It begins, therefore, that's speaking back to since we know what justification is, since we know how desperately we need it, we see what God has done. Listen, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, if that was all there was, that'd be enough. But he doesn't even stop there. He goes on and says, Through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, so he just keeps going. But we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. In church, he says, it is a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us 
And this, this, is, this next verse is life-changing. Some of you have come here today and, and you think to yourself, God can't love me. God can't save me. Listen, I get that God died for good people. No, no, I don't want you to leave this place thinking that for one moment. Let me tell you who it was that Jesus Christ died for. He didn't die for good people. You know why? Because there weren't any. For while we were still hopeless, or helpless, when we couldn't save ourselves, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Jesus Christ, you know what he did? He died for who? Who did he die for? The ungodly. That needs to be shouted from the rooftops. Jesus died for the ungodly. It gets even better. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man. Someone would dare even to die, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, think about that. That's when Jesus Christ died for us. Much more than, I mean, he could have stopped about four ago. But God just overwhelms us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us while we were yet sinners. He died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, we were, if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let me walk through this because this is just awesome. Number one, what are the benefits of justification? According to this text, number one, we have and we find peace with God. Now, folks, you may not realize it, but peace is what you need, what you are looking for almost more than anything else in life. You ask a person, what do they need most? Throw away the monetary thing. What do they need most? Most people they would answer the question, I need forgiveness. They may not even realize they need that most from God, but they know they need it from others. And most of us walk around this world and we don't have peace because we have broken relationships. And when he says that we're going to have peace and we find peace in God, he's not just talking about the absence of conflict. He's not talking about a life where everything goes perfect and you don't have any struggles or any trials. He's going he's to debunk that here in a second. What he is saying is, do you know what it's like to finally walk at peace with God? The one that you rebelled against, the one that the Bible literally says that you were an enemy of God, that literally you were darkness, that literally it goes on and says you were unrighteousness. Not that you did unrighteous things, not even that you lived in darkness. You were those things to the core of your being, and you walked away from the God who loved you and has tried diligently to give you life. And I want you to think for a second. God now says, through Christ, we have peace with him. That means you're no longer an enemy. You know what you are? You're a friend. You're no longer distant and separated from God. You know what you are? You're literally the temple in which his Holy Spirit dwells. He never is apart from you, away from you, believer. He calls you now a child of God. Many of you walked in this room and you have forgotten today that literally you are a child of the king of the universe who created everything. And no longer do you have to walk in this world afraid to enter into his presence. Do you remember what it was like when you were so covered in sin that you couldn't come to God, that you, you couldn't read the word, you, you couldn't find yourself even the ability to pray, and if you felt God's presence in your life, you almost began to run further because you didn't want his light shining on you. And now, because we're at peace with God, never again do we have to run from his presence. You know what we get to do? You know what our heart should want to do? Run to him. The words of Jesus, you know what they always are? You weary, you heavy laden, what? 
come. Are you tired? Come. Are you sin sick and, and tired of living the way you're living? What does he say? He doesn't say run. What does he say? He says come. Because God gives us peace through Jesus Christ. And it ought to give us reason to celebrate. You can have the peace of God only if you have peace with God. He can give you a peace that passes all understanding. Most of us are looking for peace in this world. And we think if I do enough things, if I go enough places, if I have enough things, it, it, you know, we think vacation, we think money, we, we think beach house, we think all these things, recreation, that they will somehow let us get out of this life that we're in. And we get away for a moment and we find that it's not a peace that lasts. Folks, the reason for that is because God never intended us to lean on experiences or things to give us a sense of peace. Our ultimate peace is not found in the gifts of creation. Our ultimate peace is found in the creator. And if you don't have him, you, you don't have anything. If you don't have him, no matter what you try to stuff into your life and fill your life with, you will continue to be miserable because you don't have peace with the one who made you and loves you. And we don't gain peace by earning. It is something that is received as we trust and as we confess Christ as Lord. Secondly, we stand in his grace. Not only do we find peace with God, but it goes on. And this is, a, this is misunderstood in the church today. We look at grace as if it's something that happened in the past. It's something that we no longer need. When we were sinners, God in his grace gave us Jesus. And, and this unmerited favor or this blessing of God was poured out on us. And, and we look at grace as if we don't need it every day. Oh, listen, you need grace more today than you've ever needed it. Because when we talk about the grace of God, listen to what he says. He says, you have peace with God. And because now you have peace with God, you get to stand in grace. Grace is an ongoing process. It's not something that happened in space and time, like when God said, you're not guilty. When he declared you justified, that happened in time and space. But listen, your standing in grace is an everyday thing. Let me, let me show you what that means. I don't know about you, but Clint did a great job last week preaching. And when you look at what Clint said, remember what he said? If you get apart from the vine, the branches, what can they do? Nothing. If you cut a branch from a vine, what's going to happen? It's going to die. It's going to wither. It's not going to be able to bear fruit because it has nothing within itself by which it can bear fruit. But if it is attached to the vine, if we abide with Jesus, listen to what he's saying. He says, then we learn to constantly stand in God's grace, where you know what? I can trust that God will give me power when I need it. Amen? That he will give me faith when I need it. That he will literally give me whatever it is that I need to face whatever it is that I'm going through. When I think about how can I stop sinning, I don't start with myself and go, boy, Aaron, I hope you're good enough. I hope you have the power. I hope you have the strength. No, I go back to the fact, the benefit that I stand in the grace of God and whatever I am, it's what he is through me. And listen, I serve a God that never fails. I serve a God that is powerful, that has the victory, that literally I don't have to wonder, am I going to have what it takes to walk through what it is that I am facing? God tells us, now that you are mine, you stand in my grace, my unmerited blessing. doesn't matter the struggles. It doesn't matter. Listen, your identity is his child, and he says... I am going to be with you, near you. I'm going to bless you. It refers to the ongoing favor of God. Listen, it means for us that we have access to God. We can come to him anytime. And you know what we know? He hears us. You know what we know? He loves us. Standing in grace means that, and this is really awesome when you think about it, it means that the past is forgiven. And we stand in his grace, right? The cross is enough. It doesn't stop there. That's not all that grace was meant for. It also means that Jesus Christ, think of his own words. I've come that you might have what? Life and life more abundantly. So it's not just about grace needed to forgive our past. But what about the life that we need in the present? And, and even more exciting than that, think of what he has guaranteed you in the future. 
You hear that word guaranteed you in the future. I'm trusting him for all of that. Not just what lies behind, but what is today and what lies ahead. I desperately need to stand in his grace. And he says, you know what? You should be elated. You should be jubilant. Why? Because you get to stand in God's grace. His power accessible to your life. He goes on and says, thirdly, that we rejoice in hope. If you go back and look at this text, he started, we've been justified, therefore we have peace with God. He says, we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace which we now stand in. And he says, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. That's an amazing fact because sin at the end of the day, you know what sin is? It means we scorn the glory of God. We know what is right. We know what is good. We know what he's asked. And rather than obey and give him honor and worship that is due him, We've scorned the glory of God. That was the first three chapters. But you know what the beautiful picture is? Those who once scorned God's glory have now been promised they can share in God's glory. (laughs) That means that we can go back to the way it was meant to be. That Christ can so change us that the world can see him through us. And we can give him the glory that we were created to give him. We can get back to the purpose for which God created us and put us here. What we lost in Adam has been restored in Christ. And we have an even greater glory than Adam. I love that he doesn't stop there. Because it's one thing to say I exult in the hope of the glory of God and all that he wants to do in and through me. But you see, he, he doesn't stop there. When he talks about hope, he goes one step further. And now what he says is, is counterintuitive. Now what he says is not the way we think in our flesh. It's not the way the world thinks. You will hear almost no one else say this hardly other than Jesus repeatedly in the scripture. And Paul repeatedly in the scripture because this stands against everything that we feel. And really everything that in our flesh we think. Because he says, I'm not just going to hope in the glory of God, the coming glory and all that our salvation is going to bring, what awaits us in heaven. He says, no, he says, even right here in this sin-sick, broken world where I feel such persecution, where I feel such pressure, where I feel all the tribulation that I'm facing, that I have to deal with sickness and I have to deal with death and I have to deal with broken relationships, all that makes this world difficult to live through, he takes it a step further and says, and not only this, but we will also, remember, triumphant elation, jubilation. He says we will also exult in our tribulations. So he says, I'm not just going to worship God when it looks like things are perfect and good and I think about what will come. I'm going to worship and praise him Right now, in the middle of all that I'm facing. God isn't just good when things are good. God is good all the time. You see, suffering is defined really in our minds, and it's true. It's all the difficulties that we face in this fallen world. How many of you in this room have one difficulty at least in your life? How many of you is a difficulty sitting beside you? No, don't you? (laughs) You better put your hands down. I'll do marriage counseling after church. I mean, think about it. The difficulties, the trials, the things that we face in this life. He's not saying we should enjoy pain. He's not saying, you know, like some kind of masochist that, that we enjoy that kind of pain that we have to suffer and endure in this world. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you can be thankful, you can be grateful, you can be joyful, you can worship, you can give praise, you can celebrate even though you're going through trials and you think to yourself, that doesn't even make sense. Well, listen to what he's saying. Because he doesn't even stop right there with just the statement that we exult even in our tribulations. He says, because look at what your tribulations are doing to you. He says, you should know. Not think, not wonder. You can know. Isn't that the word that he uses? That deep, intimate knowledge, relationship. He says, you know 
I'm with you. You know that I'm using it. You know that I haven't forsaken you. You know that I have a purpose and a plan. And if I wanted to change it, God is saying, you realize I could change it, right? But I haven't. And therefore, can you trust that I'm doing something? Because he says, let me tell you what tribulations do. He says they teach us how to persevere. To keep going. To not give up. No matter what the load that is put on us, we keep walking. And we keep believing and we keep trusting in God in this life. And he says, and when you begin to persevere, he says, you know what happens next? He says, then proven character. He says, then you and everybody around you starts to realize that your faith isn't just words, but your faith is real. That your faith changes things, not just for eternity, but right here in this life. God will sustain you, carry you. Make sure that in the end, he takes even your worst moment, your worst day, your worst fear, your worst thing. God literally can bring beauty from ashes. Ask somebody that's walked it. They'll tell you, I would have never imagined I could have ever gone through what I've gone through. But God was with me the entire way, and I'm stronger because of it. I'm changed because of it. I didn't understand it. It didn't feel good at the time. But God never left me, and he never forsook me. And today, I don't know what I would do in this life had that not happened to me, because I see everything so differently. says to prove in character hope now again i want to remind you every time we say the word hope you need to be reminded we're not talking wishful hope in the bible is equivalent to the english word assurance he's not saying i hope he's saying i am assured this hope this assurance he says it will not disappoint that's good news in the midst of all you're going through, God has an intention in the end. And he says, I will not disappoint. My plans, my perfect plans for you will be fulfilled. I'm not doing this to harm you. He's saying I'm doing this to strengthen you like gold that is put into fire. It doesn't damage the gold. It doesn't hurt the gold. It purifies it and makes it beautiful. So what we have to conclude is it's suffering. If you want to write these down, you can. It's the path to glory in the future. Jesus and Paul say it over and over and over that unless you're willing to suffer with me, you cannot share in my glory. So when you try to pray around all your suffering, you're actually praying around all the glory that God wants to bring in you. Let that sink in. Most of our prayers are, Lord, get me out from under this suffering. Not, God, what are you trying to do in the midst of this suffering? So not only is it the path to glory in the future, but it leads to maturity in the presence, in the present. If you want to grow in your faith and be matured, it's going to take struggle. It's going to take strife. It's going to take difficulty. Because God has to take you from where you were to where he wants you to be. And folks, listen, suffering is the way that he does those things. Put it this way, suffering now, glory later. You want to follow Christ? I don't know how else to put it to you. Suffer now, glory later. Let me put it the way it was for Jesus. The cross now. The resurrection later. Aren't you glad he suffered for a little while for us? The one who didn't even need to be perfected. Suffered for us. And why would we think that we would follow him and not suffer ourselves? And not go through trials and difficulty ourselves? Because here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I want you to know. That if you don't understand this basic concept of suffering that we're just talking about. If you don't understand it. Let me tell you what the danger is for you. You don't really understand Christianity. And you are destined to get mad at God. You're destined to try to walk away. 
because you start to doubt his goodness and his grace and his love for you, the whole while he's been saying, would you trust your life in my hands? And let me grow you in the way that I know is best and will last and will bring me glory. So you ask the question, how does suffering produce hope? Let me answer it for you. It's very simple. How does suffering produce hope? When you are able to endure in your faith, it reassures you. It absolutely reassures you that you really do belong to Jesus. See, anybody can believe on the mountaintop. Anybody can love people that love them. You see where we're going? Anybody can do that. But the sufferings that I'm able to endure through the faith that he has given me reminds me every day that I'm his. It assures us that our faith is real and suffering will produce in us the character that proves to the world and to us the authenticity of our own faith. Folks, we need it. We've got to learn to embrace it and give thanks. Because I can tell you, most people, their worship, Sunday to Sunday, week to week, moment to moment, has so much to do with circumstances and so little to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ in their life. That's why one Sunday you're, woo, next Sunday you're, I'm not saying life's not hard. I'm not saying it's not difficult. But I'm saying, have you gotten to the place where, because I want you to remember Paul's words. Don't get mad at me about that. Don't say, well, Aaron, you don't understand how I, no, no, no. I live life like you. I suffer like you. I have tribulation like you. I get persecuted like you. We all go through these things together. None of us are different in this journey, right? We face some different things. But this truth, if you notice, he didn't delineate. This is for some of you. He says, we know that suffering does these things in us. We know it. And we trust God in it. And the reality is, at the end of the day, are you so strong in your walk with Jesus that no matter what you face, there is still this part inside of you that is triumphant elation and jubilation? Because that is what God is going to keep working in you until he has it. Because I can tell you this, Jesus... You didn't see him moping around all the time because he had to go to Jerusalem. You didn't see him moping around because, you know, people were rejecting him. You didn't see him go, well, you know what, this, this stinks. Gosh, this isn't what I expected. I thought everybody was going to love me. I thought everybody was going to respect me. I thought everybody was going to know that I'm the son of God in the flesh. Perfect. But you know what? It seems like nobody appreciates anything that I do. It seems like all this suffering is for what? For these knuckleheads? that don't even get it, that are following me around? I mean, if anybody could have said, you know what, I just... But what did Jesus do? He trusted God. He knew his Father and his plans and his will is good and perfect. And so he endured the cross knowing it was a resurrection. And what I suffer for a little while does not even compare to what God has for me in the future. Folks, let it sink deep into your soul. Fourth, and it just keeps getting better. We live in his love. Now, this is one of my favorite parts because he goes on and says, hope doesn't disappoint. Why? Because as you're going through all of this, you begin to have this realization of something. And look at what that realization is, that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. Other translations say we are flooded with God's love through the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. Now, let me, let me phrase that for you. That means that when you became a believer in Christ, God flooded you with his love. If I got to drown, I'd like to drown in love. That's kind of the only way I want to drown, honestly. But he says, you know what, that, that if you were a cup on a saucer on a table, he says that God is flooding your life with love. His love. And what it's meant to do is he's saying, you're just this little cup that can't hold a whole lot. He says, but that's cool, I'm going to just pour it in. 
And I'm going to pour it in without restraint because what I want is I don't only want to just fill your cup, but I want it to spill over into the saucer to your neighbors, to your family. And I don't want to just pour out into the neighbors and the people close to you, but I want it to pour out on the table. I want it to drip to the floor. I want to fill this world with my love. You see, when we realize that our hearts have been filled, flooded with the love of God, you see, it doesn't just change the way you view God. It changes the way you see everyone. You see them as he sees them. The love that has been given to you is a love that now you are able to show. The forgiveness is, a, is something you can show. The patience that you've been given is something that you can show because God is just pouring it and pouring it and pouring it into you. How can the people around you not see what God is flooding you with? If they can't see it, my question is what's wrong? What's going on spiritually inside of you that they can't see it? Are you a believer? Are you just at a place where you're completely undiscipled? You don't know the truth, therefore you don't fully understand what he wants to do in you. I don't know where the disconnect is, but this world should be filled with believers that people can't help but say, man, that guy, I mean, he's filled with God's love. He's filled with love. And not only does he love God, but look at how that love spills out. And look at how he lives his life for others. You see, the Holy Spirit floods our heart with love, but it is the cross that demonstrates best his love. I love that he added this because he says, he goes on and says, you want to know whether or not you're loved? He says, look no further than the cross. It is where God's justice, he is a just God. He will punish sin. His wrath is truly being poured out. That's the justice of God. He will punish sin but the love of God said, I love you so much, I'm going to give you the gift of my son who will live the life you couldn't live and die in your place and suffer for you over the sins that you committed. And he'll take your sin and you'll get all of his good deeds, all of his righteousness. Let that sink in. And you say, well, surely God would only do that for a good person. No, 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 that's not what it says. It says very plainly. And when you were helpless at just the right time, when you couldn't do anything to save yourself, God stepped in. And God made a way. And God sent his son to die on the cross for you. He only died for one group of people. The ungodly. That pretty much takes care of all of us. Are you letting that seep into your soul? And he goes on and says, listen, I mean, uh, who would die even for a righteous man? Maybe a good man. But he says, let me tell you how deep the Father's love was for us. He sent Jesus Christ to die for us while we were yet what? Is there a greater love than that? You see, you're sitting beside children or you're sitting beside a spouse and all of you would say, I'd take a bullet for them. I hope you would. I would put my life in jeopardy to save theirs all day, every day. But let me ask you this. What about the person you can't stand the most? Maybe the person that you're holding on to hatred in your life. Maybe the person that you just can't forgive. Let me ask you this question. Most of us would sit around and say, well, I wouldn't even look at them. I don't even want to talk to them. Could you imagine a love so deep that you would take the greatest sinner in the world and love them so much that you would die while they were rejecting you, hating you, walking away from you. God says, how much more clear can I make my love than that? I died for you when you were sinners. Folks, that means that God's not distant. He's not remote. What it means is he's full of love and this God that maybe we've been rejecting and walking away from, you know what it means? He has been personally involved in seeking to redeem you and me. I believe the greatness of God's love is displayed in our unworthiness of it. I believe the greatness of God's love is displayed 
in the cost of it. And because of this great love, we get the fifth thing. And boy, this is a blessing. We are sure of our salvation. The confidence to know that we are saved. And you see, we struggle with that because we're still struggling with flesh. And so we wrestle and we, we struggle and we sin and, and we wonder how that goes with our walk with God. And is God really saved? Listen, folks, salvation, you have to understand it. That there is an aspect of now and there is an aspect of yet to come. If I died today, I'm justified. That's finished. If I stood before God right now, I'm claiming the blood of Christ. I'm under the blood of Christ. I'll make no call to my own works. or anything. It's Christ and what he's done. I know that I have been justified. But let me tell you, from now to the time I see Jesus, he is sanctifying me. That means he's growing me. He's maturing me. Now, he's going to use trials and tribulations. I'm trying to follow Jesus with all of my heart. And there are these places in my life that he's still fixing. He's still working on. But you know what the good news is? The Bible says very plainly that if he begins a good work in us, Jesus Christ is faithful to complete it. That makes all the difference because most of you have this view of God. That he saved me. Now I have to start walking. And he saved me, and he went to heaven, and he's up there in heaven looking down at me going, boy, I hope you got this. I did a whole lot to give you this new life. Don't screw it up. Think of how much I suffered for you. Don't be a dummy. Don't disappoint me. And then we start to stumble and fall, and we almost act like God's up there ready to strike us dead. You see, you don't understand who your God is. You know where he is? How much closer can a person get to you than in you? And you know what he says? That he walks with us. That's, that's all God's ever wanted from the beginning. Don't you remember Enoch? He walked with God and he was no more. That's all he's ever wanted is a relationship. To walk with us, he's not up there distant. He's not up there uncaring. He's not up there saying good luck. He's saying... Let me walk with you, and you learn to die to yourself and let me live through you because I can do things you can't even imagine. And he's teaching us how to die to self and to live for him. But I want you to know from beginning to end, guess whose work it is? We all say, I can't save myself. Well, understand, that's justification, sanctification, and one day glorification where one day we know we're going to leave this body, go into a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to be in God's presence forever, walking with him where there's no pain, no suffering, no sin, no shame, no guilt, no death, no disease. And we will finally be like he is. Well, guess who did that? Was it you? No, because it's never been about you. It's about him and his power and his might. He's the one we sing about when we say he's mighty to save. We're not talking about you. And so it has a now and a not yet aspect. We are awaiting the coming glory. We're awaiting the new bodies. We're awaiting ultimate deliverance and total peace. He says we can be sure of our future. That we don't have to face the wrath of God. Instead, we're reconciled by his life. Now, when you look at it in the chapter, he simply says it this way. He says in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we are now saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled into God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. So yes, Jesus, through his blood, took care of your past. But I want you to know right now, through his spirit and the, and the righteousness that has been placed into you, he is working out perfection in you. He's making you holy. And folks, that process ought to thrill you. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the ending. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what's coming so you don't get frustrated. 
the closer you get to God, the more light that is shining. And so the closer you walk to him, actually, the more unworthy you feel. But then you remember his promises and his word, and you remember that, no, in Christ, it's as good as finished. Now, he's still working. He's still chiseling away. He's still molding me. But the end is guaranteed, isn't it? And I want you to know the closer you walk with him. Some people get disappointed in that. They think I'm going to walk with Jesus. Suddenly, he's not going to convict me anymore. Suddenly, I'm not going to have to struggle anymore. I'm like, no, no, that's not it at all. he's changing you and it is reminding you that he who started it is not done and he's continuing to work in you and you can be assured of your salvation it is through Christ's resurrection and his life as it puts it there that we are saved today tomorrow and forever so as we go into Closing here, I want you guys to remember that there is a sixth point. I said there were six. But the sixth one has been throughout the entire text. That word exult. We exult in our God. That's the sixth point. That because of this peace and this grace and this hope and this love that we found. I mean, aren't those glorious words? That ought to stir your heart. And he says, because of who he says that we are in him, because of these benefits... He says, because we've been justified, we ought to live our entire life in triumphant elation. Jubilation. Celebration. Pick your word. And I want to ask you today, church. Is verse 11 where you are sitting today? That you're so captivated with Jesus and what he's done for you. Have you forsaken hope in finding peace on a vacation? Or in the accumulation of things? Maybe in another person? Do you realize today you need Jesus more than you've ever needed him? As much as you've ever needed him. Did you think that you'd arrived already and you're not standing in grace anymore? Do you, do you have a tendency to think that, look at me and who I am in Christ. Do you belittle people around you that you don't think are as far along as you are? In your mind, do you look down on them? If you do, it's because you forget. No, you, you're not standing on your works. You're not standing on your good name. You're standing in grace. about his love is the love of God pouring out of you to the point that it's in the saucer and on the table and on the floor Are you, do you even care about the people of Moldova the people in East Baltimore the people of West Baltimore the people of Calgary the people of Pincher Creek Canada do you care about those people in the Philippines do you care about the people of Uganda Enough to stir your heart that God's love is going to just pour out of you to the point that it, it overcomes the saucer and the, the table and the floor. Church, this message is a lot about us today. Because I want to ask you what's keeping you from that elation. That jubilation. Not just on Sunday mornings, every day when you get up hopeful. Because you have a hope that never disappoints. And maybe you're here today and you've not accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. I invite you. I don't know how to put together anything more beautiful than what we've seen here today. That we have a God that will justify us and he will change us and finish the work in us until we look like Christ. Your sins can be forgiven. He can grow you and change you today. And he has guaranteed you a future in heaven 
if you are in Christ. But if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, then all that we talked about today, you will be robbed of that peace. You will be robbed of life, of love. Because nothing in life can give you those things but Jesus Christ. And if you will repent of your sins today, turn from them, follow Jesus with your whole heart, surrender to him as your Lord and Savior, and be willing to forsake the life that you're living in sin, he says, come to me. And I will give you all that your heart longs for because it's only found in me. But your sin is keeping you from me. Do you believe Jesus died and rose again for you? Then today you can give your life to Christ. Right where you are, you can pray, Lord Jesus, I see the sin. And I know that I'm living in a way that is an offense to you, an affront to you. And Lord, I've come to you confessing I'm a sinner and I repent. I want to turn. Change me. Help me. Begin a work in me and complete it, Lord, because I can't do this without you. I believe you died for me. You rose again. I, I want to surrender my life to you. Pray a prayer like that. There's no magic words. Cry out to him and he will hear you. And the best thing that could happen today is someone have the courage to confess, I gave my life to Christ. When we start singing, people are going to be praying. Some may stand and sing. But at that moment, if you've prayed and given your life to Christ, I hope that you will come. And you will have the courage to say, I want to be part of this church. I want to be baptized and show the world that I'm following Jesus. I'm going to be standing right here. And as we start singing, that's a chance for you to come be part of this fellowship. But church... There's a lot of praying on our part because there's a lot God wants to do in us today. Father, be with us. Speak to us. Help us to say yes to you and to fight the urge to kick against what your word so clearly says. For Lord, there are some here that need salvation. There are some here that have lacked that elation and that jubilation that comes when we understand the truth of these verses. So Lord, move in us. And Lord, these Stevens ministers are here to pray for people, to encourage people. Lord, as they come, Father, may people feel confident to go knowing that their prayers are going to be heard, that they're, they're going to be prayed with and encouraged in a confidential way. And Lord, I just pray that people would take advantage of these Stephen ministers and they would know that they're not in this alone. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If